Good evening, church. Um, our reading for today is from Luke 22, verse 31 to 32. The title of the sermon is Tug of War for a Soul. The scripture reads as follows. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Lord, I thank you for this evening. Um, Let's pray for, for every word that comes out of my mouth. Lord, may it be of you. May it testify to your truth, to your gospel. And I just pray that you would use this sermon to do good, Lord. Um, pray that you would touch, touch a heart, touch a soul. Not because of my efforts, Lord, but rather in spite of my efforts, Lord. Just by your grace. Amen. The tug of war for a soul. The setting for this tug of war is uh, the evening before the crucifixion. There is an urgency at hand. Much of Jesus' ministry on earth is already done. In the preceding verses of chapter 22, you would have read of the Last Supper. In the subsequent verses, they go and pray on the Mount of Olives. This is Jesus' last evening of freedom. Tonight he is betrayed, tomorrow he shall be crucified. Time is of the essence. These words that he speaks to Peter are measured. These words are intentional. This is not to say that we just disregard everything else Jesus said in the Bible, but this isn't just a parable to walk home with and think about and ponder, and then maybe tomorrow you come back and you ask Jesus, what did that actually mean? These words were straightforward and clear. Peter's reply was, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison, and to death. Jesus' response, Jesus's response to that was, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. There is an urgency to it. Before the very next morning, the content of what Jesus's, Jesus has just said will come to pass. Indeed, Peter would deny Jesus three times. Indeed, the rooster would crow. And then it says, he remembered. And he went out and wept bitterly. Which leads me to the soul. There's a soul at stake here. Peter's faith 
hangs in the balance. The scripture says Satan comes with the intention of sifting him like wheat. Jesus prays for him that his faith may not fail. After his denial of Jesus, it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. We do not see Peter again in the text for about four days. In all four of the Gospels, for this period, Peter is absent from the text. Day one is the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Peter's not counted among those who were at the cross. Day two and three, Jesus lays in the tomb. On day four, when Jesus, the third day after Jesus' death, the resurrection, suddenly Peter returns. There's a four-day gap, and uh, I'd like us to think and wonder what was happening in those four days. Remember the last thing we heard about Peter was he went out and wept bitterly. If there were ever a time for Peter's faith to fail, I would say it is now. I don't think it was in the actual act of denying Jesus three times. Rather, I think it is in the aftermath. These four days that we've just mentioned. This for me is the crunch, the defining moment. He weeps bitterly as the reality sinks in that he has denied his Lord. Not only did he deny him, but he denied him mere hours after Jesus told him exactly what was going to happen. His faith is unraveling. Three years by Christ's side. Three years his disciple. Three years of miracles and even walking on water. But now he feels like he's sinking. Is he still Peter the disciple? Or is he now Peter the denier? He continues unraveling. Undoubtedly, he hears of and perhaps witnessed some of the events unfolding. Jesus' trial, torture, and death. All the while, he continues unraveling. He has denied his Lord, and now his Lord lies dead. The tug of war begins. On one side, we have Satan. Satan the accuser. Satan who lies and is the father of lies. Satan ever prowling like a lion, seeking someone to devour. If Peter were ever to be devoured, it would be now. His faith is at its weakest. Satan, who would sift Peter like wheat. I'm going to take a moment to describe this process of sifting wheat. After the harvest is gathered, it's laid out on the ground. You could either lay it out in one pile, beat it with a stick, or if you were lucky enough to own a donkey or perhaps an ox, you would lay it out in a circle. 
and then you get the donkey or ox to drag along a heavy object round and round in circles. This is to achieve loosening the grains from the chaff. The next step is not just to loosen it, but to separate it completely. That which is usable, edible, and healthy, the grains of wheat, still needs to be separated from that which is useless, inedible, and unhealthy. Again, there are different ways of achieving this. You could use what is called a winnowing fork. You would scoop it up, toss it in the air, and then the wind comes and blows the chaff away. The grain falls to the ground. Or to similar effect, you could use a wide bowl or sieve. Again, you scoop it up, throw it in the air, the wind blows the chaff away, the grains remain. This is a common biblical analogy for the process of separating God's people, the elect, the grain, from those who are not of God. The chaff, the wicked, those who are given over to evil. So when Satan demands that he be given Peter to sift like wheat, we can be sure it is not to the end of good. Satan would see Peter blown away like chaff in the wind. But then there's the other side of the tug of war. Jesus. Jesus was fully aware of the events unfolding. At the Last Supper, he has already foretold his own betrayer. After that, he foretells Peter's denial in great detail. And later, he even prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not your will, not my will, but yours be done. The most important event in history is unfolding with every single verse. And at the center of it is Jesus crucified. And yet Jesus still takes this time to say to Peter and to minister to Peter. I am almost tempted to say Jesus had bigger fish to fry. But Jesus even faced with the prospect of his own death, says to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But he goes on, when you have turned again, when, not if, when, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The assurance of Peter's turning back to God was never in his own strength. It was in Jesus praying for him. So there's this tug of war. Jesus, Satan, pulling at Peter's soul. 
And I'd like us to apply this exact same tug of war to our own lives, our own souls. I would say every Christian has experienced these moments, days, even seasons, where it feels like, and and indeed maybe it is, that their faith hangs in the balance. Do we not deny God as Peter did? Every sin we commit as Christians is a denial of God. I would have us ponder the reality of Satan. A reality that perhaps seems far off to us modern Christians or Western society. But Satan is not some weird personification of evil. He's real. He has a name, Satan. He has character. He has personality. He is a being, a fallen angel. He took the form of a serpent to tempt Eve. He tempted Jesus, the Son of God himself. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He prowls about like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And Christian, even today, even today he challenges your faith, accusing, lying, casting doubt. Even today, he would demand of God to sift us like wheat. He seeks your soul. And I'm convinced he even thinks he can get it. But the other side of the tug of war also persists. Jesus. It's not, it's not just unique to Peter. He who watches over us neither sleeps nor slumbers. Scripture promises us in Romans 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. I have said that Satan is not an abstract concept. Neither is Jesus. He's not some random man who died 2,000 years ago. Not only is he the author of our faith, he who made our faith possible by dying for us, he is also the perfecter of our faith. He, the risen living Son of God who intercedes for us. The same Jesus who said to Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. This is the same Jesus who intercedes for us day and night. If Jesus, while still within his earthly body, faced with his own death, still made time to pray for Peter. How much more will he pray for us now while seated at the right hand of God? In closing, 
I want us to revisit this metaphor of sifting wheat. And to do so, I'll read two verses. Firstly, Matthew 3, verse 11 to 12. John the Baptist, in reference to Jesus, says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, he will, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Secondly, Amos 9, verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, a sieve. But no pebble, no grain shall fall to the earth. Christian, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded our hopeless estate and shed his own blood for our souls. Christian, it is well with your soul and with my soul because it is not Satan who sifts the wheat. Satan would see you thrown out and burnt with the chaff. Satan would demand you of God only to throw you out. But it is not Satan who sifts the wheat. It is he who John the Baptist said is greater than he. It is he who clears the threshing floor, and it is he who gathers the wheat into the barn. It is he, not Satan. It is the God who Amos says will shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But not one pebble, not a single grain shall fall to the earth. Not one will be lost. This is our God. It is he who holds our salvation in his hands, not Satan. And I'll close with this. There is no safer place for your or my salvation than in the hands of the eternal God. Lord, I thank you for this evening and thank you, Lord, that our salvation doesn't depend on us. If it did, Lord, surely it would fail. Thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not in the hands of Satan. He does not have that authority, Lord. Thank you that our salvation is in your hands. Thank you, Jesus, that you are both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Thank you that even now, as we speak, as we sit here, as we leave, you intercede for us, Lord. We are on your heart. We are on your lips. 
Thank you, Lord. Amen.